Revelation chapter 2. Last week we introduced this uh, summer series that we're going to be going through for a little while on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. How many of you have at least heard about or know a little bit about the seven churches? Kind of rings a bell. Uh, we will not be going into the seven seals, okay? <laughs> wow, that would, have been, that would be tough. Uh, I'll stick with the seven churches, all right? Um, we'll look at Revelation chapter 2. Um, as we continue our series, where this is entitled Listen Up. And uh, we'll mention a little bit more in detail why, but eight times in just the first few chapters, the Lord says to the church, to you and I, he says, he that had ears to hear, let him hear. Seven times he says that to the church, but even earlier in chapter one, he said, listen, listen to what I have to say, listen to what I'm telling you. And so if the Lord says eight times in just a, a few paragraphs of, of his word, listen, listen to what I have to say, I think it would be wise for us to do that. As we looked at the introduction last week, Revelation chapter 1, he says there's a blessing for all those who read this letter and these letters to the church. And so I pray that there is a blessing for us as a church body as we study this. But he said also there's a great blessing and reward for those who hear but then also those who obey what is being taught here in these chapters. We're going to look this morning at the church of Ephesus. And as we said, he did say to this church, he says to us today as well, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. We're going to look at the church of Ephesus. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We'll read through the scripture and then we'll just kind of go through this a little bit this morning. He says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden uh, lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked, wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I, told, yet I hold this against you. He says, I have something that I hold against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. Notice what he says, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, this is the, the, the theme of our, our series. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up, he's saying. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the, from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you would bless just the next few moments that we have as we continue our series, Lord, on this, these very important letters that you sent not only to these seven churches, but Lord, as you said here this morning, as we just read, that we are to take heed, that we are to listen and that we are to listen up to what messages that you had for those churches because the message you had for those churches, the same message 
that you have for the church today. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn, Lord, uh, from your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move and work in our midst today. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that, Lord, we are victorious uh, through the finished work of what you have done for us. And we give you the praise, we give you honor, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the challenge this morning is to listen up, okay? Let's be reminded of the book of Revelation as we introduced it last week. It was John the Apostle, John the disciple of Jesus Christ, the the one who was referred to as the, the beloved, the one who stood at the foot of the cross when all the other disciples left, the one in whom Jesus said to John, he says, behold, your mother Mary and Mary, he says, mom, this is now your son. And he, and he gave the responsibility. And, and church tradition says that John eventually later goes to the place of Ephesus. In fact, it is this, is that Ephesus was the, was the place where John was before he was exiled to this island where they were, the Roman government was trying to shut John up. They sent John to the Isle of Patmos and exiled him there because, he says in Revelation 1, because of, of the word of God and the word of his testimony. And so they tried to, to stop John from, from doing the work of God, and they exiled him there. And I love this because God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? And they sent John there to exile him and to, to keep him from having the influence and the impact that he was having in that region. And while he was there, God used those circumstances. God used that time in his life. And while he was in exile and while he was there in order to keep him from having impact, we see that God had much bigger plans. Amen. And while he was there, John was given the revelation of Jesus Christ in the revelation that we're reading this morning. It is said that John actually took Mary and cared for her and was living in Ephesus. We know that John lived to be uh, uh, very old. In fact, it is believed that after John wrote this letter and after his exile and after the death of Diocletian, he later was sent back and he went back and lived out his years there in Ephesus. The first letter he writes is to the church of Ephesus, and this is in Asia Minor, and then we see the other seven churches. Maybe we'll go ahead and just show just a few pictures for some that maybe weren't here last year. If we have the slides of the seven churches, you can kind of scroll through as I'm speaking, but it'll give you an idea. It's in Turkey, uh, which was Asia Minor, and then off to the side, uh, if there's maybe another slide there, you'll see where Patmos is. It's a little Grecian island, a very small island. There's a few villages there uh, in, in, in still on that island now. There's what was called the Cave of the Apocalypse, where they believe where John received this revelation from Christ. He sends a letter to the church of Ephesus, and let me just mention a few things about Ephesus. It was the capital of Asia Minor. The name of Ephesus meant desirable. There was, uh, and there's still many remnants of, of this great city there today. There was a, a theater that held over 50,000 spectators, people that would come and they would speak and, and do productions. There was a temple there 
for the temple for Artemis. At one time, it was called this, this one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Very influential city. It's the capital of all Asia Minor, and this is where John was and where he was ministering, and this is where John sends the letters back. And he sends his letter to this church that re resides, the called out assembly, the believers, the Christians in Ephesus. And he reminds them of some things. He reminds them that, that, that Christ is the one who's walking in the middle of these churches. It may remind you of something that Christ is with us here today. Amen. He says, I walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, but Jesus also said this, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am here. I am here with you. That's why I think it is so important that we gather together as Christians. This isn't my notes. This is free. But can I say this? Yes, you can watch online, and yes, you can hear the word of God, and all those things are great and awesome, and there are people who cannot. But can I say this? The church is the called out assembly and there's something powerful when God's people gather together and when there's more than two or three gathered together in his name and when we sing and when we worship and when we come together, there's a spiritual synergy that takes place and the main reason why is this is because when we gather together, Jesus is here with us. He says, I walk amongst you. And there's just something about it. There's just something about being there. Somebody say amen. amen. There's just something about being there. I'll tell you why. It's because he's there. He's here. And he tells this church, he says, I, I hold the seven stars, the messengers. Literally, the idea is this. He holds the seven pastors in his right hand and he walks amongst the golden lampstands. The church is to be the light and we are to be the lampstand of the truth and of the gospel. And he reminds and comforts them. I want you to notice that he, he does three things in this, in, in to each of these churches, he does something interesting. Number one, I want you to notice he compliments them. In verses two through three, he lists off a number of things about them, and then he even compliments them down towards the end of verse six. And I just want to remind you of some of the things that Jesus said to this church as he walks amongst them. He says, I know your deeds. He says, I know your labor. I know your work. I want to remind us, church, that God sees everything. Proverbs 15.3 says that the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are in every place looking and beholding the evil and the good. We see here that oftentimes that we, we, we think, well, only God sees only the, the evil that we do. But can I encourage you with something? He says to this church, he says, I see your labor. I see your love. I see the work that you're doing. And he says, I see it all. And I'm taking good record. I'm taking a good account. God sees the things that you and I do that no one else sees. And he tells this church at Ephesus, he says, I, I have the, the all seeing eye. God God sees, amen. He says, I see you. I see where you're at. I see what you're doing. And he says, I know your labor. I know your work. And this church, the church of Ephesus was a hardworking church. They were a church that labored for Christ and worked for Christ. He says to them, I see your patience and your endurance and, and that you didn't quit and you're a persevering church. And, and I'm sure that this church of Ephesus, think about it, John was exiled. He was their leader. He was their pastor. And he was taken away from them. 
And he says, yet you still persevered, yet you still were faithful and you didn't grow weary in, in the work that you were doing. May I say this to, to all of us today, that as we continue to what I believe, continue on the journey into the end of days and the last of days, the end times, there will be more and more and more persecution like what we see here to these seven churches. We will see as we study these seven churches that many of them and most of them were under tremendous persecution from this world, tremendous persecution from even their government. And may I say to you that, yes, I thank God that I'm going to probably eat a big burger and cook uh, uh, have a cookout and all of those things and celebrate our freedom. But may I say something to you? Our freedom is very fragile. Amen. And be grateful and thankful for the freedoms that we do have. But may I say to you, uh, as we celebrate this holiday weekend, maybe just say a few extra prayers for our leadership and for our government, because I'm telling you, we're seeing that the word of God and even the things predicted in the book of Revelation, as you study the rest of this book, may I say to you, we are seeing the signs of the times. We are seeing these things come about. And as we see these things happening around us, may we be reminded of the church of Ephesus where Paul says to them, you have been steadfast and you have endured and you're a persevering church. He says you can't bear those that are evil. The idea is this, is that they were a church that tried to, to continue to stay a holy church, a pure church, a church that still stood against evil and against sin. It is sad in this day and age where now the churches of America and many churches across the world are now embracing the evil and embracing sin. Oh, may, may we not be like that kind of church. Amen. May we not embrace sin and, and encourage sin. And now uh, we, we've destroyed everything. Now we've taken even the rainbow. And even churches are taking the rainbow, a promise from God that he said, I will not judge this earth again with a flood. We've taken a beautiful token that God has given us. And now we've taken an entire month and we're desecrating it. God, help us. And many a times it's the church, it's the church that is now waving the banner of sin and, and immorality. God help us. I didn't realize I was going to get this <laughs> preachy this morning. But it needs... It needs to be spoken. It needs to be said. And may Christ be honored. And may Christ be glorified. Because he warns later that if the church doesn't shape up, he says, I will remove the lampstand. And there are many churches that need to take heed and listen up today. Amen. But may we not be that kind of church. They were a holy church. They said that they tested they tested and they tried those that say, boy, this could be a whole other sermon series, but those that say that they are apostles. He said they tested them. 
And they tried them. And they said, no, this isn't the real deal. This isn't the stuff. This isn't according to the word of God. This isn't line up with scripture. May I also remind all of us that listen to me, that that the the same thing that Ephesus was facing in those churches, the same things that you and I face today. Jesus said in the end of times, in the last days, he said that there will be many false prophets and many false teachers who will proclaim and say that they are sent by God. And may I say to you, things have not changed. Now we still have false prophets. We still have false teachers. You say, well, how do you, how do you know which one's the truth? Right here, my friends, just look into the word of God. And test it. And he says they tested it. They tried it. May I also encourage you to not just take what I say for granted or just to take what I say as the gospel truth. No, I encourage you to make sure that you go home, you open your Bibles, you read, and you study. And may I say this to you? I give you permission to ask questions. You should be asking questions. Why do you believe this? Why do you believe? Why do we believe what we believe? We must test the prophets, test those teachers, because he says there were many of false prophets and many false teachers. And may I say to you that we are living in the same days today. And so he says, test them and try them. This church, the Bible says that they tested and they tried them who claim who claim to be those who are apostles. And he says, and they have found them false. History repeats itself. He says, you endured these hardships for my name and you have not grown weary for his sake. He gives him another compliment down in verse six. And I just want to briefly mention this. This is powerful. He says, he says you have this in your favor, another compliment he gives them. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. Notice what he says, which I also hate. What are Nicolaitans? Many people believe, and I do believe this to be true, that it's, it's the word which means this, people conqueror, within the church, within the body of Christ. The word Nicolaitan, if you break it down, it means this, to, it means laity conqueror. Laetans or laity means common people, just the average person. The word conquer comes from that word niko, so it means to, to conquer the people. And in the context, what he's saying is this, he's speaking within the church setting. And he says, you hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He says, which I also hate. And so the idea is this, is, is that that there were those within the church body, those who were in, if you will, leadership, who began to take on much more than what God had intended. Meaning this, the idea is, is that they created a type of class, a type of clergy, if you will, over the people. It was that many times we might see it like this. It was more of like a priestly order over the people where the people were no longer uh, had the ability to come to God. They had to go through the leadership to go to God. Does this make sense? Nicolaitan. The idea is 
a hierarchy where in order a priestly rank, a priestly order. Remember Jesus Christ, we're going to just, just park here just for about two, three minutes. But Jesus Christ came and he said, I am the great high priest. Amen. Amen. And he tore the veil in two. You see, there was so much symbolism, even as Dan was sharing this morning of the beautiful uh, plan of God and how it has always been from the beginning. And, and everything that they did in the Old Testament leading up was to a symbol of what Jesus Christ is going to do for you and I, and that Jesus Christ became our great high priest. The entire book of Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ, the great high priest. But even as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, and when he cried out, it is finished, the Bible says the earth shook, and that the veil was torn from which direction? From top to bottom. God tore the veil. He tore the veil in half. And what he's saying is this, is that inside that holy of holies was a picture of the presence of God and was the presence of God. But because what Jesus Christ did when he did the, his finished work on the cross, he tore the veil and gave you and I access, direct access to the very throne of God. Amen. The veil was torn. Timothy says it like this, that there is one mediator. Listen to this. He says there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16 tells us that we have direct access, that we can come boldly to the very throne of grace, that you and I are kings and priests. We read it last week, Revelation chapter 1. He says there uh, in verses like 9 and 10, he says that he is created in his kingdom work, that you and I are priests, that you are your own priests, that you have direct access to God the Father, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 10, write these scriptures down. We don't have time to really spend a lot of time, but can I just say this? Look at these passages. It says that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a chosen generation, that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you and I, that you have direct access. You do not have to go to a priest. You don't have to go through a pope. You don't have to go through a pastor, a bishop, an elder, or some priest to get your sins forgiven or to have access to God or to get your prayers answered. May I say this to you? Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, he tore the veil in two, amen? And you have direct access. You you can go boldly to the very throne of God. Thank God. And so he says, I compliment you. You have not ruled over God's people. But I want you to notice a second thing he does into this church, verses 4 through 6, is he's going to correct them. He confronts this church. He challenges this church, and he confronts them. And he says, I have to do some correcting. He says, I have somewhat something against you. I, I have, I'm holding something against you. And he says, you have forsaken that first love that you had. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you. Notice this warning and remove your lampstand from its place. Let us be reminded that this church, the church at Ephesus and this church, Red Hills, is not my church or our church. It's his church. 
Christ is the head of the church. It is up to him to do what he deems necessary and fit. He says, I have somewhat against you. I have a problem with you. There's only one or two churches here where he doesn't have a strong warning against them, but he definitely has a strong warning against this church. Let me remind you of something. There is no perfect church. Amen? There is not. If you're looking for it, well, it's going to be a, a while. Amen? <laughs> Grab a few Snickers bars and enjoy the journey. <laughs> enjoy the road trip. Because it's a long road trip to heaven, right? It's going to take a while. You look in the book that we're studying in Sunday school, the adult Sunday school, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Church of Thessalonica had problems, and Paul's addressing them. Church of Corinth had problems, Paul's addressing them. Every single letter, every single book that is written in these letters to the churches, there were issues, there were struggles. We see here to the church of Revelation, as the Revelation is revealing to us that the church of Ephesus... In different churches, they had their struggles, they had their problems. They were not perfect churches. I'm thankful that God is patient with us, amen. But he says this, I do have a problem with you. And he's going to correct them. And he's going to confront them. Notice what Proverbs 3.12 says very quickly. It says this in Proverbs, Solomon says this, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father the son whom he delights in. You see, the reason why the Lord is going to confront this church is because he loves this church. The reason why he's going to not only confront them, but literally with strong words try to correct this church is because he's doing it because he loves them. In the same beautiful book of Hebrews that speaks of Christ our high priest, look what it says in Hebrews 12. In verse 6, most of this chapter deals with this. But we'll look at just one passage. It says in Hebrews, he says this, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And because the Lord loved this church, because the Lord cared for this church, he's going to correct them. He's going to confront them. He's going to... Discipline this church if necessary. In fact, he warns them, if you, listen, if you don't wise up, I will remove the lampstand. Basically, the idea is that he will, that their time will be done, will be over. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and corrects. This is something that is not often preached, but we're on a roll today, so we might as well just keep going, Amen. <laughs> God sometimes spanks his kids. He corrects them and he disciplines them because he loves them. And he gives the analogy like a parent who truly loves their child and because out of love and care and concern, he will, a, a parent, a mother, a father will correct, they will confront, they will discipline, but it's out of love. You see, he says to his church, I'm correcting you, I'm confronting you, because listen, I don't want you to go down this path. Isn't that not the same thing as parents? Why do? Because we love our children, we'll correct them, we'll confront them, and we'll, we'll even discipline. 
because we love them, because we know that the path they're on will lead to destruction. And so the Lord corrects his church. How do you and I handle correction? When confronted, how do we handle that? He says to this church, he says, you have left, you have forsaken that first love. It's interesting because this church was a working church and it was a persevering church and it was a holy church and they, they were doing many of the right things, but yet it's interesting. In essence, it is this, is that they lost or left, if you will. They left, it's a choice, their first love. I would say it like this, they lost their vitality, they lost their fervor, there was no more passion. They lost their love. I would think it's possible that they allowed tradition, orthodoxy, just going through the motions to kind of slowly fade their love for Christ. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, church, we can just go through the motions. We can take the bread, drink the juice, go to church, sing a few worship songs. Okay, we got that over with. Now let's go. Come on. They lost, I should say, I keep saying lost. No, they've forsaken it, their love. They didn't lose it, they left it. Let me remind all of us, love is a choice. No more passion, no more love. Oftentimes replaced by just going through the motions. May we take the warning that the Lord Jesus Christ gives this church. May we take, take heed to the warning today. Amen. He gives them the solution. The solution to this problem, he says, remember from when you are fallen. It's, a, it's interesting. He says, remember, repent, and you can restart. He says, remember from when you are fallen. Remember where you got off the track, where you fell off. He uses a strong word. He says, repent, repent. You might think, well, this church is a holy church. It's a, you know, we'd say it's a godly church. This church is a persevering church, and they're going through all this trial and all this testing, and, and, and they hated the deeds of the ungodly, and, and they were doing all these things right. Why, you know, why is God being so hard on, on them? Let me ask you this question. Let me just remind you of something. What's the greatest of all commands? Love the Lord God with all your heart. The one command, the greatest of all commandments, was the one that they were not fulfilling. And so, yes, we can do all these things and look right and act right and all of but if we don't truly love God with all of our being, there's something wrong. And he says, you need to remember where you have fallen. Repent, confess, and forsake it. 
And then he says, you can restart. He says, do that, do your first works. Get back to where you've fallen. Get back to where you've gotten off. Years ago, I'm getting older, so I should say many years ago. My junior, kind of junior, going into my senior year of high school, grew up in church. My father was a pastor. And, uh, you know, grew up in it my whole life, basically. And, yeah, I went to church. I'd read my Bible some and pray. And I would, I, I, I could say this not in the wrong way, but I was one you'd call a good kid, okay? Stayed out of trouble, was a good kid, at least most of the time, you know? But I, I mean, you, if you were to ask my parents, you'd say, pretty good kid. A family moved to our church, moved to our area. My father met them and had a conversation with them, invited them to church. And I'll just make a long story short, but I want to just kind of illustrate this point. They had um, three kids, but the two, two boys were exactly like, one was my age and one was my brother's age. And they were not believers. And, uh, but they started coming to our church, and they were phenomenal football players. Um, one eventually played for the Bloomsburg University. The other one went into ministry, but he was recruited by Notre Dame, Florida Gators. Like, they were both phenom, amazing football players, big, huge linemen, you know. And then there was me, this little shorter guy. But they started coming to our church. We had so many. We worked out together. We trained together. We were, we were in sports, uh, you know, different high schools, but we played sports. We'd We'd go swimming. We just hung out. We became great friends. And in this process, a long story short, they accepted Christ. And I remember my good friend, Randy, he accepted Christ. And, man, he accepted Christ. He was just on fire. I get goosebumps. I mean, just on fire. By the way, he's still on fire. He's pastoring a church in Jefferson City. And he's been pastoring there for like 20, I think they had over 25 year their anniversary, over 25 years. His brother, Nick, is pastoring in Texas. He's still on fire for Jesus. But, I mean, when, he, when they came to Christ and when they got baptized, they were so on fire. And when I saw their joy, when I saw their zeal and their passion, I had already accepted Christ years before. And I had been a Christian basically from a very young age and accepted Christ, was baptized. But when I saw their passion and I saw their zeal and their joy, the Holy Spirit just really just moved within me and said, what about you? They've just accepted Christ. And look how, look at, they can't wait to get to church. They can't wait to, to get around God's people. And they can't wait to talk about Jesus. And, and by the way, it hasn't changed. And the Holy Spirit, I will tell you this, the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I literally, that, at that moment, when the Spirit was convicting me, I got on my knees and I got right with the Lord and I said, Lord, I remember I wasn't a scholar. I was 16 or 17 years old, but I remember this passage in scripture where the Lord says, you have, you have forsaken your first love. Get back to your first love. Get back and fall in love with me. And I did. And can I tell you something? I hit the ground running and haven't turned back since. And people that know me, my in-laws are back there. They will tell you when they met me as an 18, 19-year-old young man, I had this passion and zeal for Jesus. I hope that's true. Amen? 
And it has not changed. It has not changed. Just keep on burning for the Lord. Amen. Stay on fire. But I had to repent. I lost my first love. Oh, may we never get over Jesus and what he does in our lives. Maybe some of you need to repent today and restart and fall in love with Jesus all over again. Amen. He comforts them, and I'm finished. He says, let me comfort you. In essence, he says, we'll be together again. He says, to those who overcome, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Where is it? In the paradise of God. He says, we will be together soon. The Lord Jesus comforts them with heaven. He comforts them with paradise. And that it'll be worth the struggle, be worth the trial. And he says to those, in some versions say, to those who overcome, he gives the right, gives them the right, the authority to eat of the tree of life in heaven, in paradise. Two last scriptures, we're done. Look at Revelation. How do we overcome? I love this. It's all about Jesus. He says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, speaking of Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him. How do you and I have victory? How do we overcome? They triumphed over him, the enemy, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the one who constantly accuses us. How do we overcome him? Can you say it with me? By the what? Blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We are overcomers. We overcome the evil one by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. Look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He says this, for everyone born of God, what do we do? We what? We overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Even our faith. Can I tell you something? Keep the faith. Amen. He says, who is it that overcomes the, the world? He, he reemphasizes, who is it? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do we overcome the world? How do we overcome uh, the, the evil one? Jesus says, to those who have overcome, I give the right, the authority to, to partake of the tree of life in the paradise of God. He comforts them with this. as He says, listen, to those of you who have faith in Jesus Christ, I'm comforting you with this, with this truth and this promise that we will be together in paradise, amen, and we will eat of the tree of life for all eternity, and we'll be in his presence, and we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb. Give him praise, give him honor, and give him glory, and give him thanks today, amen, amen, amen. let's stand and pray. Lord,